You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. So we're continuing to be walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're seeing that his, uh, his focus is now shifting away from Galilee. He's now heading uh, towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards his sacrifice on the cross. His days are numbered on earth. And as our Savior and as our great teacher... He's teaching his disciples, he's teaching them, and he's teaching us. As we're walking through these pages, we're walking as a disciple of Christ. We're walking in his footsteps, we're hearing him teach, he's teaching us. And he's teaching us about the urgent realities of living in a sinful world, what it means to be a disciple living in a sinful world. Last week we learned about God's perspective on sin, We learned about the urgent reality of hell, that he is just and he is righteous and he will have his day. That's an unpopular message today. But it's a message that we need to hear. It's a message that the world needs to hear as well, that we should be taking sin extremely seriously. Why? Because God takes sin extremely seriously. A greater view of sin and hell equals a greater understanding of our God and our salvation. Jesus was bold in his teaching. He's actually kind of in a season of some real bold ideas. He didn't hold any punches. He taught the truth no matter how hard it is to hear. Because why? Because he loves us. You teach people, you give them the hard news if you love them. If you don't love them, you don't tell them the truth. But he loves us. And as we turn to chapter 10 today, Mark chapter 10 We see him lovingly, but boldly again, teaching us on yet another hard topic, the topic of divorce. Now, the reality of divorce today is regarded in our culture of one of those, it's one of those battles that have been lost a long time ago, right? It's a passe issue. It's old news. Divorce is no longer an embarrassing stain in our society, but now it's the accepted rule of practice And it's even expected. Television shows are not only embracing divorce, but they're celebrating it. There's a new show on on HGTV, if you watch that. It's called Unspouse My House. There's another one where a divorced couple works together to renovate homes. Their marriage was no good, but they can work together to renovate homes. If you listen to the radio, you're going to to hear ads on radio stations here in Calgary promoting divorce lawyers, selling quick and easy and cheap and painless divorces, if, if that is even a thing. Divorce rates have doubled over the past 50 years. The current divorce rate in Canada is about 41%, which is actually lower than it was 15 years ago, but... It's a bit of a misnomer because people are just not get, getting married anymore. 56% of children today under the age of 24 live with a single parent who is either divorced or separated. And even the church has divorce. Numbers are showing that about 33% of people in evangelical churches have been divorced. 
Now, I want to approach this topic truthfully, like Jesus does, boldly, but also gently and mercifully. I know there's many of us who have been affected by divorce. Maybe some of us have experienced divorce ourselves. But what Jesus is is going to teach about divorce is going to be bold. It may even be shocking. But again, we need to hear the truth, no matter how hard it is, right? We need the truth, and we need to hear from God. When it comes to divorce, God has the final say. Well, let's pray as we go to the text. And pray first, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this morning. We thank you that your word is open before us, that it is clear, that it is bold, that it is true, and yet it is full of grace and mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you for writing this book to us, revealing to us our sin, revealing to us our need of a Savior, revealing to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We thank you for the Gospel of Mark that is teaching us what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Lord, we want to be followers of Christ. We want to follow as you would have us follow. And Lord, as we're in a season of harder topics in the Gospel of Mark, Lord, use it. Use it to change us. Use it to cut deep as you do surgery on our hearts, Lord. We pray that you would use today to to cause us to remember what you have what you have put together, what marriage is all about, and also what divorce says about your gospel. Lord, you are a good and gracious God, and we thank you for this morning. Thank you for these people. I pray that you would move me aside this morning, that you would speak directly from your word, that your Holy Spirit would drive it deep into our hearts, and that you would get all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 10. Verses 1 to 12 today. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. When it comes to divorce, God has the final say. He has the final say. And this is true as we come to this text here as well. 
We're also going to be taking a look at some other scriptures to help get, help us get a, a good rounded view of, of what Jesus is talking about here with this uh, divorce. As I've been studying uh, this week, I've been anticipating questions about this as well because this text will naturally bring up questions and it's going to confront uh, our understanding of divorce and, and remarriage. You know, within Christianity, there's multiple views about this. And, and where one person lands and somebody else lands may be a little bit different, but there's room for that. Divorce is not a primary issue in the church, right? It's not the same as the Trinity or substitutionary atonement. It's a secondary, a tertiary issue. But what's most important is that we don't build our opinions on marriage and divorce and remarriage. We don't build that on the wisdom of the world, we build that on the wisdom as revealed in Scripture, right? That's, that's how we need to approach everything as Christians. And so as we look at this text today, when it comes to divorce, the first thing that we need to know is that we need to seek God's perspective. We need to seek his perspective. Going back to verse 1, it says he left there. It just means that he left Capernaum, right? He was in Capernaum, likely at Peter's house. That was his home base of his ministry in Galilee. And now they're starting to get closer to Jerusalem. So he left there and then he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. This is really a name of the area getting closer to Jerusalem. Beyond the Jordan was, was kind of a, a region. And so what we're seeing here is Jesus, again, getting closer to Jerusalem, getting closer to the cross. In fact, the last half of the book of Mark is really focused in Jerusalem and him going to the cross. The last half is really all about his passion. The crowds are gathering to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. You know, we've seen throughout Mark already, all the time, Jesus was, was, was teaching and he was healing people and people would gather around him in throngs. And then he would also teach. And what was he teaching about? He was teaching about the kingdom of God. He was teaching God's perspective of man with respect to God. Verse 2, and then Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So that's how we're going to begin this morning. We're going to ask ourselves that same question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, we know that divorce is, is legal here in Canada. But the question the Pharisees are asking Jesus is not about civil law. It's about the law of God. They're asking, is divorce allowed in the eyes of God? Now we know the text says that the reason that these Pharisees are asking him this is to test him. Up to this point, the scribes and the Pharisees have been bent on trying to trip Jesus and his disciples up. They have been accusing his disciples of being unlawful, and they want to find some kind of legal ammunition to throw Jesus under the bus. They want to destroy him. And so they come up with this question about divorce, because it's a bit tricky. We're going to see that here in the next session, next section as well. But when we think about that question, what they did get right about the question was to ask the question. They asked Jesus the question. Even though it wasn't the intent of their hearts, they asked Jesus. 
They ask the God of the universe. They ask him the question, is divorce allowed? Is it legal in the eyes of God? Is God okay with this? We need to seek God's perspective. Even though their hearts weren't in the right place, they're trying to trip Jesus up. The the question calls us to seek God's perspective, to seek it on all things, to seek it on everything, to seek it on marriage, to seek it on divorce. And the reason we need to seek his perspective is because if we try to answer this question according to the world's wisdom, according to our friend's wisdom, according to our own feelings and desires, what kind of answers are we going to come up with? As a Christian, how do you answer that question? Is divorce allowable in the eyes of God? It's a big question. Is it okay? No? Yes? Maybe? Maybe in uh, certain circumstances? What are you basing your answers on? That's the question. Is it based on subjective opinion, on your desires, on your feelings, or is it based on truth? Is it based on God's truth? When it comes to divorce and marriage, we need to seek God's perspective. It's his opinion that matters. It's his opinion that holds weight. It's his opinion that has total authority. In Isaiah 55, the prophet talks about seeking God's ways. Seek me while I may be found, forsake your wicked ways and thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 to 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to see God's perspective. His thoughts are so much higher than ours. So the question the Pharisees are asking is the right question, but the intention of their hearts are all wrong. And Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what they're going for. He knows exactly what they're trying to do. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so as Jesus often did, he answered a question with a question. He answered them, well, what did Moses command you? You know, what does the law say? What has been revealed? What does the word of God say? God's perspective. Verse 4, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, we wrote you this commandment. He wrote you this commandment. When it comes to divorce, we need to seek God's perspective. But we also need to be searching the root cause. We need to search the root cause cause. So back in ancient Israel at the time of Christ and then even before that, the cultural understanding of marriage was quite different than it is today. Marriage back then wasn't this kind of mutually equal institution. Women didn't have the same equalities of men. Marriage was very patriarchal and it was primarily focused on continuing bloodlines. And as often as it goes, if a husband was tired of his marriage, and he wanted to get out of his marriage, all he had to do at that time was write a certificate of divorce, and he could send her away. Now, originally, the scripture that these Pharisees are referring to here goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. 
In fact, that whole chapter is about divorce. It's really the only chapter in the Old Testament devoted to instructions about divorce. But the scriptures that they are referencing here wasn't so much a law about divorce as it was a law about purity. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house... And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This wasn't a law commending divorce. It was a law dealing with the fallout of divorce. It was simply stating that a man couldn't remarry his former wife if she married somebody else. Because if she did that, she would be defiled, and she would defile him, she would defile the promise, she would defile the country, the purity of the people. And so as we fast forward to Christ's day, during when Jesus lived, people were proof texting this verse, this scripture, ripping it out of context to suit their own desire for divorce. And the worst thing was that the Pharisees and the priests approved all of this. They even allowed a husband to divorce a wife if she exposed her ankle in public, if she wore her hair wrong, a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his supper. Who would have thought that burnt toast could be grounds for divorce? So just imagine all of this. What's going on here? Well, as we've studied before, the Jews were excellent at making laws on top of laws on top of laws, right? They were excellent at making laws to get around laws. They were always stretching and redefining details of the law so that they could get around the law. Just recently, uh, in New York, I got a picture, funny picture here behind me. The New York subway system wanted to limit the size of dogs that were allowed on trains. They said only dogs that fit inside of a bag are allowed to ride on the trains. Let's take a look at those pictures. I don't think that's what the subway system meant. But it's true. This is the same thing that the Jews did with the law. Always trying to get around the law. Why? It was because of sin. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, it's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. So when it comes to divorce, we need to search the root cause. We're not trying to work around the rules. Search the root cause of the sin. That's what Jesus is doing here with the Pharisees. He's telling them that they have divorce. Why? Because of their hardness of hearts. We have divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. 
Divorce was not God's intention. Divorce is our own doing. The sinful desire for divorce was born in the garden. Because conflict between husband and wife is a result of the fallout of sin. After Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, the fallout of their sin led to curses. Remember those? Remember Eve was cursed with childbirth, pain in childbirth. Adam would have pain and toil in his, with his work. But we also see that there was curses in their relationship. Genesis 3.16, halfway through, God says to Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Ladies, you ever wonder why your heart doesn't readily want to follow your husband at times? Husbands, do you ever wonder why the harshness of your heart towards your wife is, is revealed? Sometimes it's right here, right after the fall of mankind. Her desire will be contrary to her husband. She won't want to follow him. His desire will be to rule over her. He'll be harsh with her. He'll be overbearing. The relationship has been distorted, and the relationship will struggle. She'll want to go her own way, and he'll want to get his own way. It doesn't work. And this sin has been passed down to us as well, right? It's been continually working throughout the generations. It's still happening today. We all want to get our own way. And sometimes it ultimately ends in separation and divorce. Divorce is being sold today as a bill of goods. It's being sold as an answer to our problems, as a way of freedom. But don't believe that. Don't believe those lies. Sin never leads to good. Sin never produces the right answer. Sin never frees you. Sin binds you. Don't believe those lies. When it comes to divorce, we need to search the root cause. Hard hearts. The reason we have it is because we're sinners. So as Jesus catches these Pharisees in their complete misunderstanding of Scripture, he takes them beyond the law. He takes them all the way back before the fall of mankind, he takes them back to the garden. And he takes them back to the creation of mankind him itself. Verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. When it comes to divorce, we need to seize his good design. Jesus is showing us that here. So notice that in regards to marriage, Jesus doesn't point the Pharisees back to prophets, back to kings, back to patriarchs. When it comes to, to marriage, he doesn't lift up David and Solomon. He doesn't point back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's marriages. Just study those. Those are not examples for us. 
Jesus points back beyond all of these and he lifts up God's good and perfect original design. He points them to the unstained prototype. He points them to the perfect standard, the one that he created in the very beginning. He refers to Genesis 1.27. He says, from the beginning, God made them male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, male and female, he created them. God's intentions in creating was not to create two isolated creatures to live autonomously on their own. The whole purpose of designing them was to bring them together, to join them together. Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This phrase, to hold fast, literally means to stick to, to join to, to fasten to. To be stuck, inseparable, like nothing else can in all creation. Verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh. And this speaks of the physical uniting through sexual intimacy in a marriage, but it also speaks to the uniting of a mind and spirit. They are no longer two, but they are one flesh. You see, in God's eyes, the best reflection of himself in mankind is when one man and one woman unite in holy matrimony. This is his good design. Both of them are created in his image, right? Equally, individually, but both are created in his image uniquely. Men and women are different. Can you guys agree? Men and women are different. Our society is not saying that. Men and women are biologically different, emotionally different. And we have different roles, different functions, but yet we're equal. And when these two unique individuals join together physically, spiritually, and emotionally, they best reflect the person of God together. This is his design. He loves this. And all of this took place before sin corrupted it. Jesus is showing the Pharisees and the disciples, and he's showing us here still today that this is his standard. This is the goal. This is beautiful. When it comes to divorce, we need to seize his good design. That means nothing lower, nothing less. So with that, did you know that your marriage is not really about you? Ladies, this may be really shocking, but did you know that your wedding was not really about you? Do you know that God designed your marriage to be much more than a dream, than a ceremony, and a fulfillment in this life? Jesus is calling us here to embrace God's original design. He wants us to see God's intent in marriage, that it was never meant to be about marriage. It's good. We enjoy it. He loves that. He uses that as grace in our life. But marriage is not about marriage. Marriage is not the ultimate thing. He doesn't want us to think that marriage is all about us. Marriage points to so much more. What did Paul teach in Ephesians about marriage? Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32. 
He actually quotes Genesis 2.24 here. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he interprets what marriage ultimately means. He says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Our marriages are not really about us. Our marriages are about Jesus. Our, our marriages are about the gospel. And this is the original design from the very beginning. And it was to teach us. It was to teach us about God, teach us about his gospel. It was to teach us that we have a bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and that he has come to earth to hold fast to his bride. Us, the church, to join us, to unite with us forever. Do you think about your marriage that way? Is that new to you? Do you think that your marriage is more than falling in love? More than buying a white dress? More than building a home? More than having children? Don't get me wrong, all those things are amazing and they are good. And God wants us to enjoy all of that. But what he loves most is his gospel. That he loved us first. That he loved us so much that he sent his son to rescue us from our sin. That he sent a righteous, sacrificial bridegroom for the unrighteous, unwilling bride. That's the gospel. That through laying his life down for his bride, for the church, the bride can be saved from her sin. And the bride can experience forgiveness, reconciliation, joy, and satisfaction in God, in the bridegroom. You see, Jesus is pointing us to the original standard because it points to the gospel. And when we think like this, our perspective of our marriage changes. It's not just a horizontal thing anymore. It's a vertical thing. And when we see it from God's perspective, the concept of divorce only becomes more evil. As marriage teaches the gospel, what does divorce teach? Divorce teaches an anti-gospel. Divorce teaches a lie. Divorce teaches that Jesus leaves and he forsakes his bride. Nothing can be further from the truth. Verse 9, Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When it comes to divorce, we need to submit to his sovereign ways. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I don't know if it could be any clearer than that. Jesus commands us not to destroy what God has joined together. It's not our choice to make. If God has joined a man and a woman together, he is sovereign over that. Through his divine will, it came into being. No matter what kind of mess it started in. And if he's the one who put it all together, who are we to think that we can pull it apart? The words of Jesus are abundantly clear. It's God's prerogative. It's not ours. 
If you ever want to know what God thinks about divorce, here it is. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That's worth an underline. That's worth a highlight in your Bible. That's the heart of God towards marriage. That's the heart of God towards your marriage. He's brought this thing together. Don't even think about pulling it apart. Now, this sounds pretty serious. It sounds pretty permanent, doesn't it? Like we don't have the freedom to divorce. Now, as I say this, I know that many questions may be coming up in your mind. What about this? What about that? What about sexual immorality? What about adultery? What about abuse? What about desertion? What about love? Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5.32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. He also says that in Matthew 19.9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Seems to be some kind of an exception here. As questions are coming to mind, I have these same questions as well. I've been wrestling, I've been wrestling with this all week. Ask, just ask my wife. Even last night, I'm in my sleep as I would wake, thinking about this topic. And I was up really early this morning, kind of chewing on this. If it's not up to us, what about all these things? What about adultery? What about sexual immorality? What about what Matthew's gospel is saying? It's the same conversation, it's just in Matthew. Is there some kind of an exception here? Well, as you have these questions, many throughout church history have had these questions as well. Opinions from this, of this differ from person to person, from pastor to pastor, from church to church. In fact, two of my most revered author pastors disagree on this. And like I said, there's room to disagree on this. But divorce is extremely important. It's an extremely important issue in the church. It's not a primary issue. There's room for differing. And throughout church history, there have been about four different views of this. Four different views. The first is the patristic view. This view goes back to the early church fathers. It goes as far back as the first and the second centuries. And it allows for divorce, but does not allow for remarriage. Uh, this view argues that God intends marriage to last a lifetime and that remarriage is adultery. But it also recognizes that divorce is a reality of living in a fallen world. Second view is the Erasmian view. It's also called the standard Protestant view. And it argues that the Bible allows for divorce for adultery and willful desertion while also allowing for remarriage after divorce. Uh, this is actually seen in the Westminster Confession, which says, Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage. Adultery and desertion. Third, we have the permanence view. The permanence view teaches that one flesh union of marriage can only be ended by God, and that is ended through death. That divorce in Scripture is descriptive rather than prescriptive. That it's a reality of life, but it's not an allowance by God. 
that any remarriage after divorce is adultery, that this view also claims that the most faithful understanding that drives them is that marriage is about Jesus and the church. And if it's ultimately about the gospel, then divorce is teaching an anti-gospel. And then there's a fourth view, which is really no view at all, just divorce for various reasons, which is really propagating in the mainstream church, basically an allowance for divorce for a multiple of different reasons. The Bible isn't as authoritative in that view. Now, the question is, out of these four views, where do we see ourselves? Where do we land? What makes the most biblical sense? Now, even though we have room for difference here, and even in our church, I think number four is completely void. I find myself somewhere between the permanence view and the Erasmian view. I tend to lean theologically and idealistically towards the permanent view because how closely marriage is tied with the gospel. What we say about marriage reveals what we say about the gospel. You can't separate the two. But with that, I also see the reality of divorce in the world. And it seems pretty clear in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is affirming some sort of exception if sexual sin is involved. In Matthew's gospel, he has the fuller version of the conversation. And the reason that uh, scholars think that is because in, in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, that there's already a context and an understanding that adultery is worthy of death. They've already got that figured out. But in Matthew's gospel, he, they need a little more clarity. And so Matthew has the fuller conversation. Matthew 18, 9, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of porneia, sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. So the word porneia here is like an umbrella word for any sexual sin made against a marriage. It's where we get our word pornography from. It covers any sexual impropriety against the marriage covenant. Now as I've been studying this, there is, there is some who question this exception clause talking about marriage uh, as actually being betrothal in this sense. They point back to when Joseph discovered that Mary was pregnant with Jesus. Remember that they were betrothed to be married? They weren't fully married yet. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Right? That's before they were sexually intimate. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, when we think of betrothal, we often think of engagement. But back in the Jewish culture, betrothal was much more serious than an engagement. It was basically marriage without the consummation, without the intimacy. And so it was so serious that you would have to have a written divorce in order to break it off. So some scholars believe that in Mark's gospel... Jesus might be referring to the betrothal period. And if betrothal is what Jesus is referring to, then maybe the exception isn't for marriage. Maybe it's just for the betrothal period. Another text that I've had to wrestle with this week is Romans 7, verses 2 to 3. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. You know, that's where we get our marital vows, right? Till death do us part. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Again, what we're seeing here is that this text is embracing the main thrust of our verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It seems that this pointing to permanence. Life-long marriage. According to Romans, marriage is ended by death. And it seems clear that God's view of marriage here is one man, one woman, one marriage for life. What God has joined together is separated by death, not by choice. This seems to be the case as well in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 11. To the married, Paul was writing, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. It, it, it seems here that God is, is honoring first marriages. Even after the two people separate, they should remain single with the hope of reconciliation. And then we also have Malachi. <clears throat> Malachi, where God is dealing with the remnant of Israel, returning back to Jerusalem, but then quickly running to divorce their wives to pursue pagan wives. And if you have the, the NASB, Malachi 2.16 says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. God hates the breaking of marriages. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. I think God is revealing his mind towards divorce. So I think we can see clearly that divorce is not his will. I think his perspective is pretty clear. He hates it. It's not our prerogative to choose. But then we also have to see Jesus here in Matthew acknowledging that divorce may be permissible due to some circumstances, due to sexual sin. So what do we do with all of this? I think we need to be really careful. We need to be careful how we marry both of these angles together. God is not div divided. He is united on this. So when it comes to divorce, we have to embrace that divorce is hated by God. The reason he hates it, just think about it. What is the watching world being told when Christians divorce? What is our families? Seeing What's the gospel that's being shared through divorce to our families? What about our children who are watching? What about for the church itself? It goes against his very purposes. It goes against his good design. As marriage teaches that Jesus never leaves nor forsakes his bride, divorce teaches that Jesus does forsake his bride. He does leave his bride. It's an anti-gospel. So what do we do with this? That means we need to hate divorce. If God hates divorce, we need to hate divorce. 
We need to see the lies that divorce is telling us. And this is why when I'm studying this theologically and idealistically, I'm in agreement with this permanence view. But I also see the practical reality of divorce and the exception clause that we're seeing here by Christ in Matthew's gospel. And what I also see at the very heart of it is that we have divorce because of our hard hearts. It's sin at the center. Hardened hearts are birthing grounds for sexual immorality and adultery. And this ultimately destroys relationships, and God also hates that. In the Old Testament, adultery had the sentence of death. But in the middle of all this, what we have to remember is that at the center is God's sovereignty. God knows the beginning from the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows that you may be married to someone who will commit adultery. He knows that you might be married to somebody who might abuse you, whether it's physically or verbally. He knows that you may be deserted by a partner. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He knows all of this. He sees our hearts. He sees the hardness. So if we agree with God that he desires for permanence in marriage, one man, one woman, one marriage, one life, it doesn't mean that we need to agree with abuse. It doesn't mean that we need to agree with desertion. It doesn't mean we, have, we need to agree with adultery or any other horrible reality of sin in a marriage. As an elder, I want you to know that if you're ever in that kind of a situation, your leadership will not stand for, we will be there for you. We will be there for you to protect you, to take you away from that situation, for safety for you, for your children. We will go to the law when the law is broken. We will report abuse because we must report abuse. We're not going to stand in the, in the way of legal authorities over anything. And then also with that, please know that, that we're going to do what Scripture commands us. We're going to do what the Lord is commanding us to do. We're going to follow through as a church. That's why we have things like church discipline. Praying, counseling, confronting, rebuking. As we follow through Matthew 18, we're going to take the steps necessary to deal with the sin at hand in hopes of bringing true and lasting repentance by the grace of God. It goes like that with adultery as well or sexual immorality in a marriage. We will take these things very seriously as the leaders of your church. We're going to confront, we're going to rebuke, but we're also going to support, we're also going to counsel. We're going to follow through. And if the defender, or if the offender, not the defender, if the offender does not repent, we're going to follow through with church discipline, which means separation. For as long as it takes for the counsel, as we pursue the offender with his sin and, and possibly put him outside the church in the end in order to put the pressure, according to Scripture, for him to come to repentance. But then when we also remember 
the exception clause in Matthew, we also have to balance that with God's sovereignty here as well. We have to remember that church discipline is often a slow process. And if we run too quick to divorce, we might be short-circuiting the work of God that he wants to do in the sinner's life. Let me ask you, do you think that God brings hard things in your life to bring about repentance and faith? If we just dangle the option of divorce out there like a cookie from the very beginning, if we run too quickly to it, we may miss out on the beauty of the gospel to restore and bring about repentance and to bring about reconciliation. God hates divorce. What he has joined, let not man separate, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Right? This, is a, this is a careful dance. This is a slow dance that we have together. God's sovereignty, what he has revealed, his hatred of divorce, how we walk forward in that. I believe that no matter of rushing is going to help anything. In my study, I was reading a, a true story about a woman who was about 40 years old when she got married, and she got married to a man, and quite quickly she discovered he was abusive, both physically and verbally to her, uh, so much so that she had to finally be separated from him to protect herself, to protect her children. But instead of divorcing him, because she believed marriage was for life, she decided to remain legally married to this man, but to live separated and to, to devote her life to praying for him. And she did. She kept praying for like 30 years. Until one day, this man ended up in the hospital. He was confronted with death. And then a pastor came and visited him, and he ended up getting saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't until then that he really understood the depths of his sin and the sin against his wife. And he repented to her. He repented to God. And they were ultimately reconciled. That's what the gospel does. That's what the gospel can do. Do you believe that? Now, that's not true always in, in marriages that break apart. But there's a beauty seen there. As God is sovereign and his timing is always perfect, the pathway to salvation always comes as someone is confronted by the stench of their sin in light of the beauty of God. And so as I've been wrestling with this in my mind, I am in total agreement with God's heart towards marriage. I'm in total agreement with his hatred of sin and divorce, but I also see his mercy when sin goes unrepented. When a person doesn't see their sin, when a person doesn't repent, when it comes to divorce, we don't tolerate abuse, we don't tolerate sexual immorality, but we also need to go slow. We need to submit to God's sovereign ways. And finally, when it comes to divorce, we need to stop the cycle of sin. Verse 10, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. 
And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And that's where it ends. Friends, sin proliferates sin. What Jesus is saying here is that if we want to divorce someone in order to marry someone else, it is sin. It's the same adultery in the Old Testament that was punishable by death. And today it's punishable by death too. Death and eternity. Do you remember why John the Baptist lost his head in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark? He confronted Herod in his sin, his desire to be divorced and to marry somebody else. John lost his head. Herod will pay for it in eternity. The grass may look greener on the other side at times, but the other side is always tainted with death. Sin proliferates more sin. God hates divorce. God hates adultery. He hates sin. I hate divorce. I'm a child of divorce. I've experienced the pain and the anguish of divorce firsthand as I watched my parents' marriage blow apart. I'll tell you, any child agrees with God when he says, I hate divorce, if their parents are going through that. I agree with God that I hate divorce. I get it. In some ways, in my own parents' life, I don't think divorce was the right answer. But I also see the repercussions of unrepentant sin. In many ways, I think in my parents' marriage, the process should have been slowed down. They should have received some real biblical counselor, counseling. True church discipline should have been brought forth. But in the end, one side never seen their sin. They never confessed. They never repented. And so it ended. So I see the heart of God here. I see the heart of God and his hatred for, for divorce, but I'm also seeing his mercy. And what helps me to know is that all of this is forgivable. This is not unforgivable. There is nothing too terrible that the Lord will not forgive if you repent and believe. When we see our sin, and when we confess it to God, when we commit our lives to following Jesus Christ, to being transformed into his image, when we truly repent, we can trust in the promises of God that he will forgive our sin as far as the east is from the west, that he chooses to remember it no more. If you are, have experienced divorce or you've been touched by divorce, there is so much forgiveness in the grace of God. There is so much healing. There is so much joy. Because we have a bridegroom who does not leave his bride. That is the joy that we get to look for. This world is fallen. This world is broken. The reality of sin is here. And even as Christians, we're going to see sin in our lives. 
if you've experienced the pain of divorce, maybe the Lord is just calling you to a new place of understanding, just really letting you see his heart towards marriage and divorce and remarriage. Maybe he wants to do a deeper work on your heart of repentance. Maybe he wants to do a deep work on your heart of forgiveness. It might be a time to confess. It might be a time to cry out for forgiveness and then watch the Lord do his work in your life. Marriage is God's good design. It's designed to bring glory to him. And as we walk in these days together as his church, let's walk forward with the gravity and the glory of God as revealed through marriage. And so as we're motivated by grace, as we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, as we are informed by God's word, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to remarriage, let's always be seeking God's perspective. Let's be searching out that root cause, that hardness of those hearts where this is coming from. Let's seize his good design, that perfect design from the beginning and how it glorifies God. Let's be submitting to his sovereign way, which means we're going slow. We're careful. We're going slow. We want to see what God is going to do. And then we need to stop the cycle of sin. All to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you don't skirt around issues. That you reveal things truthfully and boldly. That you reveal your heart to us. Lord, we want that same heart. We want to have the mind of Christ. We want to think like you think. We want our thoughts to be like your thoughts. We know that they're higher than us for sure. But Lord, would you continue to renew our minds? Would you take your truth? Would you implant it deeply into our hearts so that we will not sin against you? Lord, when I think about the people of this church, people who are visiting, many of us have been touched by divorce. Some of us have walked through it. Some of us are remarried. Lord, we know that you hate divorce. And so wherever that sin may be that maybe needs to be confessed, wherever that forgiveness is that maybe has not been forgiven, Lord, would you be producing that work in us? Would you be showing us the mercy and the grace of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ in our lives? We pray that you would be working deeply in us and changing us. Lord, we want to treasure marriage as you, treasures mar as you treasure marriage. We want our marriages in this church to be bringing you glory and to be a witness to the watching world that Jesus never forsakes his bride. He never leaves his bride. What hope. What joy is found in that promise. We love you, Lord. We thank you for today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.